Welcome to In The Trenches, where entrepreneurs, artists, writers, designers, inventors, warriors, and leaders share their stories of doing the hard, creative work that impacts all of our lives. Let the journey inspire you to do something worthwhile, build something bold, and create your life's work. And now, your host, Tom Morgus. Hey everyone, welcome back to another broadcast of In the Trenches. I'm excited to have Ian Brody on the call with us today, and we're going to be talking about authority. Like, how do you become an authority in your space, and why is that important? Obviously, I don't want to take away the thunder, but I think the concept of authority is really fascinating because I know I, I had some trouble like kind of understanding it deeply, and obviously we'll get into that today. But when I look at it and say, well, what separates those people that when you look at it from you know, a consumer standpoint, like you see these people, you're like, oh yeah, that's the person who's great at X, or that's the person who does Y. I think authority is a big piece of that. It's when you become like that true thought leader or that true person who's like the go-to person in your marketplace. I think part of that is what authority is all about and what authority does for you. And I think that's why it's so important. So if you're doing any kind of service-based business right now, if you're running an online business, if you want more leads, more sales, like you need to position yourself as an authority. So I think this is super important. And Ian, I just want to say thanks for being on In the Trenches today. My pleasure. Take me back a little bit on this. Like, let's start from the basics here. Like, what does it mean to be an authority? Obviously, there are many, many definitions of authority. And I think one, one of the simplest ones is just that an authority is someone who is an influential expert. So you've got two things going on there. One is you have the expertise side. So we're not just talking about kind of celebrities, the, you know, the, uh, the reality TV people who are really well known without having any actual skills at anything. But you've also got to be um, influential. So I think we all know some people who are really experts at what they do, but they haven't developed the skills, the communication, the visibility, so that nobody's taking any notice of them. You know, it's the little geek in the corner who knows everything about something, but has no impact in the world because they're not influential. So if you combine the influence with the genuine expertise, then you get an authority. And the impact you see of that, as you were saying in the intro, is that, you know, it is one of the components that really makes people interested in working with you. I, I was part of a little research study of a couple of years ago done by Hinge Research, who were looking at um, authorities in the professional services field, and they interviewed me and as like a little case study. But one of the really interesting things that I found that came out of their research was they spoke to buyers of professional services, so consultants and lawyers and accountants and people like that. And they asked them a couple of questions. And one question was, you know, what are you willing to pay for someone depending on their level of expertise, you know, compared to a baseline? You know, if you look at the baseline of this person's good at what they do, they can get the job done, but they kind of know the same things as everyone else. And they had various levels of authority, you know, ranging from, well, this person's, you know, the best in their firm to, you know, the best locally, the best in the industry to the kind of, you know, global level of authority. And the interesting thing for me was that the range of how much buyers, and these are real buyers, you talk about real dollars, were prepared to pay. And it ranged up to 13 times as much for a global authority, eight times as much for an industry level authority. And, and, you know, two and a half, four times as much for people who are just kind of local or, or beginning to establish themselves as an authority. Now, that's not just a 10% increment or a 20% increment. We're talking about even a relatively minor increase in someone's perception of you as an expert can double or treble or quadruple or more the fees you can charge. But in conjunction with that, 
they also asked them, you know, how much of this type of work do you need? What's the demand level for this type of work? And you'd have thought, well, of course, the fee levels go up, but, you know, there's much less of that type of work available. But it turns out that's not true. It's true at the global authority. If you're the number one person in your field in the entire world, then you get paid 13 times as much, but there's much less work around. You know, most clients don't think they need the number one person in the entire world. But the most in-demand type of experts were the kind of industry-level experts where you were a real expert in a particular field, in a particular industry. And those were much, much more in-demand than people who just had the basic level of skills. You know, the demand for commodity skills wasn't wasn't actually really there. So really interesting that, you know, you begin to establish yourself as an authority. Not only do you get paid more for that, but you're also in more demand. Not everyone, of course, is in it just for the money, of course. I don't mean to, to say that. But the fact you're getting paid more and you're in more demand gives you more freedom, gives you the ability to work on the sort of things you want to work on, gives you the ability to kind of contribute and have more impact in the world if you want. But it all comes from that, you know, that increase in demand and that increase in fee rate. I love it because, well, it's one of those things. You only have so many hours in the day, right? And so many days in your life, and we don't know when that goes away. But if you're going to be doing work, if you have two choices, well, I can do the exact same work and I can choose two paths. I can choose a path where I work with people who I don't necessarily like and who kind of treat me like garbage maybe, and I get paid uh, average, or I can get to choose the clients that I work with. I get to get paid a lot more. I get respected a lot more. I mean, which path do you take? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's not just about the pure monetary side, but that that level of demand, that level of fee gives you the ability to pick and choose. You don't have to work as much with the higher fee rates and there's more people who want you to work for them. So you can choose the people who you're going to enjoy working with, the most interesting type of work, the work that you think is going to make a bigger impact, you know, that's really more important to the world. You get to choose that when you're seen as an authority. But if you're if you're not seen as an authority, then you kind of have to do what the, the type of work you can get. It's, it's so, so fascinating to me because it's absolutely this, this concept of authority, of perceived expertise. It has so many like elements of psychology like in it when you look at things like whether it's Dr. Cialdini and, and his book, mm. like Persuasion and, and even um, Influence and stuff like that. A lot of it is just that. It's this influence on the mind and it's how you present yourself. It's, it's how you package yourself, how you're positioning yourself and that that somehow you could take something that is a commodity, like arguably and you can turn it into something that's no longer a commodity and you turn it into this thing that's just people not only will pay more for even though it's like deep down at its core probably totally a commodity like water or something like that if we just look at it just in products like people pay a ton of money for like Fiji water or something like that <laughs> but it's it's water guys but there it is and it's this positioning and it's so i think this idea of authority especially if you're a professional service provider of some sort it's so important it's like the most important thing there is i think that's the thing is that i think when you are a service provider, I mean, the truth is you're not a commodity. The, the, you know, we're talking about people who do brilliant work, who are experts at what they do. But if they don't watch it, they end up being treated like commodities. But if they use the skills and the experience and the methods that, that allow you to, you know, as you said, brand water, but you apply them to something that isn't a commodity, then you also get a real multiplier effect. So you get, ah, you, know, so yeah. you start off with something that isn't a commodity. But that then allows you, it gives you more ways of differentiating it. You know, if you're trying to brand water, that's really difficult. Well, on the other hand, if you are already, a, you know, a pretty strong expert in your field, it's kind of a matter of finding who does who is that expertise the most valuable for and how can I position it right so I get an even higher impact. And that way you kind of, you know, you feel good about it as well. You know, you know, the, the people we're talking to 
are not just selling water. They are selling deep expertise that will really help clients, but they're struggling to break free. It's almost ironic that often experts who are different struggle to come across as different, whereas, um, you know, water, which really isn't any different, is branded as being different. Oh, and I th- that's why I bring it up. Yeah, it's not to like belittle or downplay like the real expertise and real professionals and stuff like that. It's just to put it in perspective that there are companies that do this with water. Yeah, absolutely. If you can brand water, you can certainly brand an expert. <laughs> exactly, right? I just find it so fascinating. Okay, so anybody listening is like, okay, got it. Get to the point, Tom. All right, Ian, how do we get there? How do you position yourself as an authority? How do you become that authority? I think there are two different paths. There's a long and difficult path, and there's a still difficult because because you know there is not a, an easy shortcut, but it's a lot faster. And the long and difficult path is, you know, years and years and years of expertise and experience and having done it for 20, 30 years, and you slowly work your way up the hierarchy, and eventually you become recognized as the leading person in your field because you kind of outlast everyone else. That's not the route I would recommend. Just to use an example, I'm going to use um, the high jump as an example because I think it illustrates it quite clearly. So up until about the mid, mid to late 1960s, you know, the way people did the high jump was they used a technique called the straddle, which is where you kind of run up and you kind of roll over the bar and then you land on your kind of feet with your, and your hands, sort of kind of crouching. And that was the way everyone did the high jump. So in the mid-1960s, if you were a budding high jumper and you wanted to win a gold medal and you wanted to hire a really expensive coach and pay them a lot of money to train you to win a gold medal and be a world champion, the person you would hire would be the person with the most experience in the straddle and, you know, the, who's seen as the biggest expert, maybe has the most qualifications in the straddle, has loads of students and testimonials in the straddle and has been doing it for years and years and years because how else do you know that they're a real expert in it? That's what you would do in, in the 1960s, up until 1968. In 1968, everything changed because in the Olympics in 1968, a guy called Dick Fosbury came along and he ran at the bar and he jumped over it backwards. He didn't go over forwards, he jumped over it backwards. Now, he was able to do that because of changes in technology, actually, because prior to the, the mid-1960s, when people did the high jump, they were landing on grass or, or sand. And if you jump over the bar backwards and you land on grass, you break your back. This is not a good thing to do. But from the mid-1960s onwards, they started using the big crash mats that you see today, very soft. So you can jump over on your back, you can land on your back on the mat, and you'll be safe. And Fosbury was the first guy to pick up on that. So, of course, he invented what we call now the Fosbury flop. And it's the technique everyone today uses to do the high jump. So now it's 1968. You're a budding high jumper looking to win a gold medal or a world championship. And you're thinking, who do I hire you know, to teach me how to be the best high jumper in the world. Do I go with the guy who's got 30 years experience teaching the straddle? He's got all the best testimonials from all the best straddlers in the world. Or do, do I go with a guy who's got one year's experience, but he's teaching the Fosbury flop, this completely new technique that's changed everything. You're going to go with the Fosbury flop because even with a, just a year's experience of the Fosbury flop, it's mm-hmm. better than the straddle. So that's the thing I would suggest budding authorities focus on. It's a different point of view. It's a different way of doing things because that allows you to get to the top faster. If you want to be an authority by doing the exact same thing as everyone else, except doing it better and having more experience in it, or maybe having better customer service, a nicer person to work with, that's all really difficult to prove. And it's intangible and it takes a long, long time. But if you come into the market with something that's different, that's a different idea or a different way of doing things, then you can establish yourself at the top of the pile much, much quicker because you're making your own pile. 
you're the only person or one of the few people doing that. So just to go into the business world and to give you know examples from there, I like looking at sales training where it's very it's very obvious how that's happened. So back in the 1970s, one of the very first authorities in sales training was Linda Richardson, and she invented consultative selling. So consultative selling is simply asking questions and finding out what your customers need rather than trying to pitch them your product and what you've got. Now, that sounds incredibly obvious today, but back in the 70s, that was revolutionary because that's not what salespeople did. Salespeople just rocked up and pitched all the benefits and the features of their products. And Linda told everyone, no, ask some questions, find out what customers need, show them how your product meets their needs. Brilliant. She became an authority. And then you got people like Neil Rackham coming along and Rackham invented spin selling in the, in the late 80s. And he, he kind of highlighted that sometimes it wasn't just about the need and the problem of the customer. It was about drilling into what the real impact, how big of a problem it was. And that's going to motivate someone to buy something really big if they understand kind of like the business case and the size of the problem. So he became an authority with that new idea. And then you got people like, you know, Miller and Hyman who talked about, well, if you're selling to an organization, you've got to understand how they make decisions and all the different people involved. You're not selling to one person, you're selling to multiple people. That made them authorities. You've got Sharon Drew Morgan, who really in, in the last 10 years, I guess, has been talking about the challenge today isn't the buyers don't want to buy your product. They're already convinced. It's that they can't get over all their internal barriers in their organization. They can't convince their boss. They can't make the business case for the finance guy. So your job as a salesperson is actually to help the buyer get over all their internal barriers. It's not to sell them. It's to help them and facilitate them through the buying process. So all these authorities have arisen, not because they kind of come along and said, I'm really good at sales and I'm really good at all the sales techniques you already know. I'm just better at them and I'm more experienced at them. They become authorities because they've come up with new ideas that work better than the old ideas. So that's really, I think, the first thing to do in your own field is think about of what you do with your clients. So whenever you work with your clients on anything, whether that's marketing, whether it's sales, whether it's supply chain, cost reduction, finance, whatever it might be, what do I do differently and better for my clients that gets them better results? Mm. And turn that into a point of view, an idea, and express that. Because the interesting thing is all of these people who became seen as an authorities, they didn't keep that methodology secret. They told the world about the way they did things, and it was by telling the world about the way they did things that people you know, stood up and took notice and went, whoa, they're doing something different here, and it seems to be getting better results. I'm going to see whether it'll, it'll work for me. And you know, not all, of them, not all of them became authorities for everyone. So it's not as if one authority replaced another. All they did was they established their own little niches or niches where they were seen as the leader. So a great example is the Conference Executive Board, CEB, recently, probably the latest authorities in the world of sales, and they created something called the Challenger Sale recently, probably, I don't know, probably about three, four, five years ago. Huge best-selling book. They're probably now recognized as the leading, the, the leading edge people where organizations go to get their, their sales training and their ideas. And what they did with, with Challenger was they basically came along, and it highlights one of the really important things about a distinctive point of view. It's fairly obvious if you're going to have a point of view, it's got to be valuable to the client, and they've got to get good results from it, and it's got to be kind of unique and different to you. But the other thing it's got to be is disruptive. By that, I mean it can't just be an extension of what the client's already doing. Because if the client's already doing something similar and you're showing them a better way of doing it, they're probably going to think, you know, I'm 80% of the way there already. I'll just try and do it on my own. It needs to be different. You know, the, the Fosbury flop is not the straddle done better. It's a completely different technique. And with a challenger sale, you know, the dominant way of thinking in sales 
up until a few years ago was, you know, if you'd asked any sales trainer, what's the secret to sales? They'd have said, oh, relationships. It's all about building great relationships with your customers, with your clients. You build great relationships, you'll get sales. And the challenger folks came along and said, no, you know what? We've done the research. It's not about relationships. In fact, good relationships can sometimes hold you back because you they stop you saying the tough things to your potential clients that they need to hear. Being successful in sales is all about challenging your clients and introducing new ideas, not just having a buddy-buddy relationship. And mm. the key thing there was they were challenging the existing thinking. Ironically, they're called challenger as well. They challenged the existing thinking of people in the sales training world. It caused a whole ruckus. You know, loads of people argued with them. They said they were stereotyping old ways of doing things. It wasn't really like that. They were wrong, etc. So not everyone loved it. What you found, especially early on, was, you know, let's say 80% of people who were doing sales the traditional way kind of looked in and went, no, that's not right. Relationships are really important. Of course they're important. My experience tells me relationships are really important. No, I'm going to ignore them. But 20% of people looked in and went, oh, hang on, there's something here. There's something different here. I'm not getting great results from the way I'm doing it with relationships. Let me try this new way of doing things. And they fell in love with them. And the 20% couldn't buy from anyone else other than the CEB. They wanted their sales training, their insight, their books or whatever. They had to buy from the CEB because the CEB are doing are the only ones doing Challenger. Hundreds and hundreds of people are training you in how to build good relationships. That's a commodity market. But teaching you how to challenge your clients, there was only one organization doing that. So, of course, they got the premium and they became seen as the authority, not by everyone, but by that segment of the market who bought into the new idea. Oh, my mind has expanded. This is good. So I got a lot of... A lot of wheels spinning right now. I love it. So a big piece of it is one, you have to be able to do the work and deliver results. We'll take it as an assumption that anybody listening to this, what are you doing? Great work. They're already doing the work. They're getting the results. To me, one of the things, and I don't know if you actually said this, but I think it was underlying everything you were saying was you have to like package and then position whatever it is, that thing it is that you do. Give it a unique maybe name. Yes. Okay. So is that like the next step here? Or tell tell me about that. Like what are your ideas on that? Like how do we approach that? It is. You I mean you're you're absolutely right. It didn't say it, but you are completely correct. You jumped ahead. So you start off by thinking through what is that point of view? What are those ideas that I have that are really valuable to my clients that are different from what everyone else is seeing? So usually it's the stuff you argue with people about. You know, if you're in a in a bar with your colleagues who are in the same field and you argue about something and you say, no, no, you're wrong. This is the, that's usually a clue. This could be a good point of view for you. Or if you work with a client and they're really surprised, if they kind of come to you and say, God, you know, I didn't really want to do that because I thought it was absolutely the wrong thing to do. But whoa, look at the results we got. If people are surprised, if you're arguing with people, if you want to try and keep it a secret, that's the stuff to focus on. And obviously, as I said, you needed to be disruptive as well. It needs to be different to what they're currently doing. So once you've got that, you need to package it in a way that's easy to communicate. And usually that means turning it into a model or a methodology. So you'll mm. see loads of different, there are lots of different ways of doing it. So I mentioned Neil Rackham earlier and his model for sales was spin selling. And he just used the, the initials of um, the different types of questions you'd ask, uh, situation questions, problem questions, implication questions, or impact questions, and needs payoff questions. Because spin's now a bad word in the, in the world. It wasn't when he came up with it. So you can have little acronym models like that. Or I'm from a consulting background. Just consultants are forever using two-by-two two matrices. And you come up with a little model that says, you know, well, if you vary this and vary that, there's four quadrants here. Which one are you in finding the right one? Or or you've got all those psychological things, whether it's a Belbin or a Myers-Briggs or Sally Hogshead's Fascinate model, where you ask some questions and you put people in a little in a little model. And then based on where they've come up with, you see these are the things you should be focusing on. 
or pyramids, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, or, you know, I do, do a really simple, I've always done when I've been talking about high-end sales with clients, I've always used a really simple pyramid where at the top, you've got the top, you know, your perfect 10, small number of really perfect clients that you tailor your approach to. Underneath that, Dream 100, you take a standardized approach, but you're reaching out to them. Underneath that, it's everybody else. You just take a reactive approach. So, you, you know, you come up with a little model that makes it easy for clients to understand what it is you're talking about and the value they get from it and gives them some currency as well. Because, you know, if if a client starts talking internally, if they're a bigger organization of about, you know, your spin model, for example, oh, yeah, we need to implement spin in the business. Well, you know, back in the 90s, if clients were really excited and saying, well, yeah, we've got to implement spin, they had to use Huthwaite, which, which was Rackham's training company, because they, they were only people who did it. You know, once clients are using your words and your models, they almost have to hire you. This is fascinating because it ties in and it's like, it's what underlies a lot of people are doing online right now, like e-learning, e-courses. Like that's, I mean, that's fundamentally it. It's like, why would I purchase this course versus this course? Yeah. And you'll find, you find a lot of the gurus kind of moving down that thing. If you look at someone like Frank Kern, for example, is yeah. a, a lovely case. You know, originally Frank's difference was, you know, I, I'm a cool surfer dude. Go and buy stuff from me because I'm a rebel and I'm different. But over the years, he's become more mainstream mm. as online marketing has become more mainstream. But now he's really branding his methodology as, what do you call it, behavioral response something or other. So yeah. he's taken his approach to um, online marketing and about adapting your messaging automatically to what your customers are doing based on them, you know, clicking links and visiting your videos. He's taken that methodology, he's given it a brand name, and, he, and if you go to his website, if you went to frankkern.com, probably can at the minute, and you'll probably see, I'm taking a risk here, I'm just going to type in frankkern.com. Yep, I got it. <laughs> it's real. <laughs> it's a, so blah, 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 the most dependable and consistent way to generate wealth. If we go to his about page, Behavioral dynamic response. That's the one. Yeah. So he is he has taken that exact approach where he's come up with an idea of something he was doing differently. So he was doing something a little bit more advanced than people. He was using his infusion soft and and tailoring his campaigns so they were different based on how people were responding to them. And he packaged it up exactly as you were saying into an approach, a methodology that other people could implement, that clients could implement, and he gave it a name, behavioral dynamic response, which kind of sums up what it does. And I think that methodology, that, that packaging it up is important as well, because thinking back of kind of scaling, if you want to not just to spend all your time doing this stuff for clients, so if you have a completely unique way of doing things that gets great results, but you keep it a secret and you don't turn it into a methodology that people can implement and use, then every time they want to do it, they kind of have to hire you to do it. Now, that's great initially, but eventually it puts a limit on your earnings. Also, it's not so attractive to a number of clients. If you're, if you're a smart client, you know, if I'm a smart client and I, I want to do automated marketing, I want to know that after I've hired Frank and maybe he's helped me set up my campaigns, that I'll be able to do it myself, that I won't have to bring Frank back every time I need to tweak a campaign. I want to know there's a method behind it, not just some genius locked away in Frank's brain that he can't explain. So by turning it into his methodology that he can explain to people and, and you know, lay out in a flow chart and lay out in a series of slides. Not only is he able to do it with you, but then he can leave it with you and you can keep using it on an ongoing basis so you get more value from it. And of course, he can sell it as training programs, courses. He could license out the methodology to other people. So turning your ideas into, you know, a methodology that's documented is the first step into being able to scale beyond just you doing the work for clients. Yeah, this is fascinating. So I, I was just thinking about this, like 
especially like the Frank Kern one as an example, but like there's a lot of people that come to my mind. A lot of people have had conversations with recently. Actually, when we did the Authority Super Summit like a, a year and some months ago, like a lot of the people that we brought on are doing it now and we're doing it at the time, having some sort of branded something or other because it's like, yeah, it's like why do we choose one person over the other to work with them? Absolutely. And remember these days people are making decisions, you know, when, we, when you're buying someone, especially, again, if you're doing it online, you're not spending days talking to someone face-to-face and really understanding their thought process and what they're doing. You've got more limited information to go on, so you need to take that information and compress it so that it can kind of get into people's brains. You know, reality of how decision-making works, they're sitting in a room or they're having a beer or there's a couple of them talking and they're going, well, which one is the best? And if they can't, re- you know, well, I spoke to, I spoke to Ian, he's got this thing where you do this and then maybe you do that. And then, or, you know, I spoke to Frank, he's got this behavioral dynamic response method and uh, it speeds up your sales cycle with automation. It's just clearer what Frank's does because he's named it and he's mm. described it in a simple way. It means it's easier for you to make a decision because that's going to lodge in your brain, whereas you know, a complex and fuzzy description of it isn't. And the second thing to that, too, is um, it gives people the ability to, to uh, have a conversation about that thing. Otherwise, it would be this like, very generic conversation. Like you, uh, you, Maybe you even couldn't have it. Because with Frank, yeah. you could still talk about Frank, maybe, and he's always oh, a marketer. Okay? But no, with this, you could talk about, I'm using his behavioral dynamic response process right now. And then all of a sudden, you have, by introducing a term uh, or a name, or that kind of branding, like giving it a name, it becomes this kind of like tangible thing in the world that people can discuss and debate. And I think that's overlooked a lot. That words are really powerful and the way we name and brand things is really powerful. And and not to get into like this branding thing, but just the word itself, because that's how we communicate. Like that's language. You can't name it. You can't talk about it, can you? You're absolutely right. And how many people are, are doing just that in the space? Here's an example, and I'll let you, uh, and I'll give you back the floor. I look at like Facebook advertising, and there's a lot of people that do Facebook advertising. I mean, tons. But I'll tell you what, there's probably only a handful you can think of that are actually teaching it, and they probably have some sort of name that they give it. And I know that's the case because I've been looking into this recently, specifically about that. I was like, what are these? What are the names people are doing? Because Facebook advertising is Facebook advertising. Like, I'm sorry, like it just is, right? Well, you know what? It, it's all about the maturity of the market, isn't it? In that yeah. if you think back five or so years ago in terms of Facebook advertising, when no one was doing it really, began to get, you know, the Amy Porterfields and John Loomers, et cetera, beginning to talk about Facebook advertising and yeah. the kind of Sam Card guys when they were doing their Facebook advertising stuff. All they needed to say was, hey, it's me. I'm doing Facebook advertising. No one else was. So automatically, people who were doing Google AdWords or other types of advertising were willing to try it out because it was something new and different. But you're absolutely right. These days, there are so many people doing Facebook advertising. Most of them have learned from the same courses, so they're all kind of doing the same stuff. So without branding behind it in terms of a different methodology, and people don't know how to choose, but also, and this is about the market maturity, I would guess that most people who are wanting to do marketing online now have tried Facebook advertising more than once, and maybe they haven't had much success with it. So if your positioning as a, as, you know, as a trainer of Facebook advertising is, you know, hey, I do Facebook advertising, I kind of do it the same way as everyone else, but, but better, that's not a great positioning for, for your prospect who's tried. What you're essentially saying is, hey, you know, buy my course, you'll learn how to do Facebook advertising the exact same way you've tried before, <laughs> but it didn't work. But because I'm really good, it'll work differently. You know, yep. you'll get better results. On the other hand, if someone's, I think, I'm trying to think of Nick Kuzmich's, I think he has a 4D method. Um, so I'm not a real big Facebook advertising person, but if you're able to say, 
learn Facebook advertising from me and you'll learn the 4D method. And it's different from other methods because we do A, we do B, we do C, we do D. It's got 4D. Oh, actually, it's D, 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 isn't it? 4D. <laughs> mm-hmm. Then in your brain, you're going, okay, well, I tried Facebook advertising before and it didn't work, but this seems to be different. He's doing it a different way. This might work for me. I can see how this would work for me. So it gives you hope. It gives you, you know, some hope that something that maybe hasn't worked for you before will work this time because it is visibly different. You can see the difference rather than just having to rely on someone saying, hey, it's different. Yeah, and that brings up a point. Maybe I came out flipping when I said, oh, you know, Facebook advertising, Facebook advertising. I agree, like your point on the maturity of the market, I think is that's a very keen insight because it does depend on that. Like I look at the Facebook bot thing right now. People are like just, hey, you should use Facebook bots. And there's a few people now kind of competing for that space. And it's like, that's it. Like, that's the thing. Like, just get a Facebook bot. But if that market matures, it's going to be like, here's my bot marketing method, you know, or my behavioral bot system. Exactly. You are spot on. You know what? That's brilliant. Because if I was, if I was looking at that field now, I remember yep. looking at Facebook messenger bots middle of last year and thinking these, these look really exciting and interesting. I, you know, I like everyone. I got my many chat subscription, or whatever set yep, up, yep, yep. played around a little bit and then thought, you know, I don't have the time for this. Exactly. You know, if I wanted to come up with a training course and be good at Facebook bots now, too late to go in and just say, Hey, implement a messenger bot. Here's how, because there are loads of people doing it. I think the thing to do right now, if you want to make it in, in the in the world of messenger bots, you've got to come in with a unique methodology. Now, I think we're we're, we're I think we'll see that in the next six months, people coming up with with new methodologies for not just hey, I'll show you how to do messenger bots because messenger bots are new and you'll get great results. You'll get here's the X Y Z method for doing messenger bots, and it works better because you know it harnesses some weird aspect of psychology that no one's looking at or it does X, Y, Z. So there's got to be some hook to it for why it works. And there's got to be some evidence behind it that shows that it really does work. So that that's kind of the, the thing. You need a methodology that you can brand. You need a hook that shows you why it works, um, some logic behind it. And then you need, um, you know, evidence that it really does work. And then you've got something that'll fly even in a relatively competitive market where everyone else is just saying, Hey, I'll teach you Facebook bots. And you know, here's another thing I'll say too, coming back to the Facebook thing. And, and I think that's what a great opportunity for anybody listening to this, like trying to get like, man, okay, there's your opportunity like go in, get some amazing case study out of this, brand your expertise in the bot space and boom, you're, you're already all of a sudden like the premier person in this space because it's burgeoning. It's probably going to grow or at least maybe now granted, what if it goes the way of Periscope? Who knows? But probably not. Okay. But I will say another thing. I don't mean to water down the importance of this and just say, well, it's just, that's it. Like there's no real difference between these kind of things. There is. I think that's the thing. Like if you're doing it in a way that matters, like your, your naming, your branding and your positioning, because there is actually something to what you do. Typically that means that you put in the thought process behind it to deconstruct that. And then if you mm. put in the thought process to deconstruct that idea or that process or that system, and then you've been able to break it down step-by-step step for somebody else to follow that, Sometimes that is exactly what somebody needs. And so all of a sudden, Facebook ads aren't just Facebook ads. It's like, I just didn't understand them before. But now when I follow this particular process, because this person deconstructed their process and then made it so I could replicate it, all of a sudden that is actually a very powerful thing. Mm. And it does change the nature of it. I say that because I don't want to come off sounding like, oh, marketing is marketing. And it's like, it's not a real thing. Like it's just, it's all this smoke and mirrors. I think it can be, but I think in a lot of ways that that's not it at all. Like the people that 
do stand the test of time, Frank Kern probably isn't a great example. There's totally something legitimate behind behavioral dynamic response. Mm. And chances are a lot of that is that he's been able to deconstruct and then create a process in a way that certain types of people can understand it better. When I write or, or create anything, like I always write and say, how, how would Tom do this? Like, how would I explain this to Tom? Because I consider myself one of the dumbest people when it comes to this stuff. And if it's not like, if it takes me like, and, and I have attention, like such a short attention span. So it's like, if it's not immediately apparent what to do next and why, and I, I need both those things, like what to do next and why, what to do next and why, big picture, then little picture and go like high resolution. So that's how I try to teach and, and train. And if I don't get that in somebody, then I can't, I can't really understand it. I can't comprehend it. So somebody yeah. could be showing me like the best thing in the world and it's like, if it's not broken down that way, it's no good. But if somebody came along, it could then break that process down, call it something else, even if they wanted to. But if it's broken down in another way that is more comprehensible, then I, that's the person I'm going to follow. I, you know, Tom, I think, you're, I think you're right on so many levels there. I mean, there's, there's one level in terms of the, the marketing is adding value there, isn't it? Because yeah, you're breaking it down into a way people can understand as part of your marketing process. I think the other level as well is if you are capable of breaking it down like that, it means you truly understand it. You know, the people who don't really yeah. understand it, who aren't the deep experts, can't do that. They can't break it down. They can't turn it into a methodology because they don't really understand it. They're kind of flying by the seat of their pants. The ironies, I think, and they probably know this from psychology, there's a thing called the Dunning-Kruger effect, which, you know, philosophers have known about it for hundreds of years, but Dunning and Kruger named it in 99. And it's the finding that people who are real experts at something always underestimate how much they know. They're, they're always lacking in confidence. Uh, whereas the people who don't know that much about something tend to be overconfident. So when they do tests, like a math test, the people who, who really don't know much about math and who've scored pretty so badly funny. always overestimate their score. The people who are the real math whizzes, when you ask them what their score was, they always underestimate it because they see all the nuances and the subtleties yep. and the, you know, they know so much, they know what they don't know. The guys who don't know much don't even know what they don't know. That's and it, you, man. the result you get of that is... When it comes to your own expertise and trying to create a methodology, I hear from a lot of people I work with, immediate kind of responses, well, that's just obvious. And actually, it's not. To the real world, to people out there, the thing that these folks are experts in isn't obvious. It's like a major revelation when they explain it. But the expert thinks it's so obvious, they often don't bother trying to explain it and don't bother trying to write it down. And they think, oh, I'm not really an expert because, you know, everyone knows this stuff. And they're wrong. Everyone doesn't know that stuff. That's so important to know. And it's funny. It's almost like you could say like the first step to attaining mastery and being an expert, probably one of the thresholds is getting to that point where you recognize how little you know. And maybe yeah. I'm saying that because I, I feel like I've, I've hit that in maybe the last like year or two, whereas maybe before I was like pretty, maybe I was like one of those more overconfident people. Now I'm just like, gosh, there's so little I know. Like any one of these areas, I'm like, man, there's so little I know. Like I, but I'm finally aware of how little I know. And then, yeah, I think I, there's that dangerous part of it where it's like I, I then underestimate what I do know. But I think that's interesting. Like there probably is a threshold there where it's like once you've started to attain mastery, I think you start to recognize just how little you you actually know. You almost go through a crisis of confidence, don't yeah, you? Yeah, big time. Whoa, there's just so much. Yeah. It's important to recognize. And that, that's one of the key things about being an authority is to recognize who mm. you're an authority for. One of the, the things that I think is helpful to, for people to realize is, is, is to do this thinking about, okay, well, who am I going to be an authority for? And there's a wonderful phrase by a guy called Anton Corbine, who is a, an independent film director. He makes like music videos and he, he's got this quote that says, um, I'm not really famous. I'm just very well known to certain people. And most people, when I read that quote from Corbine, I went, who are you? Never heard of you. 
and you're certainly not famous. Turns out, you know, if you are, you know, REM or Oasis or, or any kind of big independent band, he's the guy you want to make your music videos. He's incredibly well known to indie bands because he makes the coolest videos, but to the rest of the world, he's completely unknown. And and that's what authority can be like. You just have to be really well known to your to the key people who value and get real value from what it is you do. And that can also be at different levels. So I think a beautiful example of someone who's an authority is Pat Flynn. Mm. Pat Flynn's what I would call a trailblazer. Because if you think back to Pat Flynn five or six years ago, when he first started out, how much did Pat know versus the people who were following him? He's maybe just a couple of steps ahead. Mm-hmm. He kind of he's kind of set his stall out and said, "Hey, I'm going to try and figure out how to how to make passive income, but I'm going to be really honest about it." He wasn't one of these guys who kind of faked it till he made it and said, "I'm only one or two steps ahead, but I'm going to pretend I'm an expert." He basically said, "Look, this is what I know. I'm going to try these things and I'm going to tell you what I find." So every step of Pat's route, he showed people and was very transparent about what he was doing and what got good results for him and what didn't get good results for him. And he got better and better and better and better. So now you look at him and he knows an awful lot. You could, you could say he's a kind of really high level authority on certain things, but he didn't just kind of lock himself in a darkened room and study for five years and then suddenly appear as an authority fully formed. He did it step by step. And at every step of the way, there were people just a couple of steps behind him who saw him as an authority because he was just like them, but a couple of steps ahead. And I think that can be a really powerful form of authority. If you're sitting kind of like at home and listening to this and thinking, oh, it's too early for me. Actually, you can be an authority for people who are just a couple of steps behind you, provided you're transparent about it, provided you don't pretend to be, you know, the leading expert. You just say, hey, this is what I know. And I'm going to, I'm going to show you what I know. And you almost live your life in public. You know, you document what you're doing. You show them your experiments and I think these days people really buy into that because, you know, if you think of our of our celebrities these days, it's the people who are active on social media and you see their life rather than, you know, 20, 30 years ago, the closest you got to the Beatles was you, you screamed at them from an airport as the plane landed and you didn't really get close to them behind the scenes. These days, our celebrities, we know what's going on in their lives. They're, you know, they're videoing the whole thing, they're sharing it and we kind of expect to see behind the scenes. And I think... You know, for someone like Pat Flynn, who's a couple of steps ahead of people, they can connect with that. Sometimes if you look at an authority and they're so far ahead of you, you can't possibly comprehend how they're doing what they're doing, then it doesn't help you. Sometimes the best authority for you is just a couple of steps ahead because you can you can feel as if, well, I could achieve that. I could do that. If they can do that, I can do that because they're just a couple of steps ahead. So, you know, we talked about, you know, your point of view, et cetera, and that's all really important and that can leapfrog you. But don't think that you have to be, you know, Frank Kern level well-known to be uh, seen as an authority. For a group of people, you can be an authority, a better authority for them because you're just a couple of steps ahead. I love it. I mean, we could probably dig into this topic even even deeper, but probably a great segue into where people can find out more about you, Ian, probably take that challenge, which we didn't even really bring up today, but what a perfect segue into it. So go ahead. The floor is yours. Well, brilliant. So what I'm doing for the last couple of weeks, I've been running something called the five day authority challenge. So a lot of the ideas we've just been talking about, about creating a distinctive point of view. And then the next steps from that, which is, you know, getting that point of view visible to your ideal clients and following up and deepening your authority with them. And um, the five day challenge is all about showing you all the steps. So you know exactly what you've got to do to become seen as an authority in your field. But more importantly than just the kind of education angle, it's getting you to take action, to create a roadmap, to take the first steps in each of those areas. 
five-day challenge or 30 challenge is completely free. You just go to ianbrody.com and it's up there on my homepage. So that's I-A-N-B-R-O-D-I-E.com. Click the button to sign up for the for the five-day authority challenge. It'll then send you 10 to 15-minute video every day for five days, most importantly with some exercises for you to do that'll build you your roadmap. And then you share those exercises in the Facebook group for the challenge. And there's some brilliant work going on in there. It's people kind of, whoa, I'm trying to think of my, you know, what do you think of my point of view here? I'm thinking this. And other people going, no, I, you know, that's not that's not unique enough. I've heard that too many times before. But have you thought of this? And really helping each other out is some amazing stuff going on in that. I'm watching that group from out kind of thinking, well, I, I don't know what I've started here. It's like it's, it's grown a life of its own, people just helping each other out, all on their journey to being an authority. So if the idea of becoming an authority is attractive to you, come along, do the five-day authority challenge completely free. You will get a ton from it. And I'd love to see you in the Facebook group and uh, give you some feedback and some ideas. Wonderful. Well, I think I'm going to dive in there as well. I just want to say, Ian, always a pleasure catching up, man. Very insightful, great conversation and I appreciate your insights on this. And for anybody who's listening, check it out. Seriously, dive in. Great place to start, no matter where you're at, because even if you're just getting started, it'll give you a good framework to move forward. And if, you, mm. if you're relatively established, authority is one of those things that can kind of be one of those like kind of 10x type things that take you to that next level. So no matter where you're at, I think it's worth taking a little bit of your time and putting some time and energy into thinking through this idea of how do you become that authority. So Ian, thanks for being on In the Trenches with us. My pleasure, Tom. Thank you for listening to In The Trenches. Your creative work doesn't stop here. Join the resistance, the small but growing army of entrepreneurs and artists putting a dent in the world at www.tommorkis.com. Never fight alone. Join the resistance. <laughs>